Greg, where did you put my crown of thorns, buddy? You move them every time you preach. makes me so mad. <laughs> they go right here, right here around my drink. I'm not even going to preach this morning. It's going to be, I'm going to be out of, I'm off kilter. We'll see if we can suffer through it, pun intended. All right. Man, I'm glad y'all are here. It's a special morning. I have five people really especially on my mind. It's actually six. Five people that, six people, gracious. See, that crown of thorns. If it was right there, I wouldn't have done that. Six people that are on my mind this morning, especially, and a congregation. These six people, Emery Livingood, Lydia Jones, Levi Jones, Ben Jones, Samuel Jones, and Henry Sutton. I am uh, in many ways aiming this sermon at them especially. I kind of know where generally you guys are, but not exclusively because this is also for the people of God this morning. This sermon is for the congregation. A baptism is not just about uh, the person that's being baptized. It's about what's happening to the congregation, what the congregation is seeing, what, it, what God is reckoning in that moment. So uh, that's my aiming point this morning. Um, I hope and pray that uh, all of the above will happen. I've trusted the Lord in the, the uh, design of this sermon. It's a little bit different from something that I've typically done, but I think that uh, hopefully the Lord will, will use this. Let's uh, continue in prayer. I'd like to pray for a couple of uh, um, boys that are being treated for different things, and I want to pray for a local church. So let's pray. Lord, we want to pray for little Everett uh, first this morning. Just pray that you would just use this treatment that he's going through, Lord, to bring some uh, miraculous, really, healing to his body. We pray for Caroline uh, and Colton as they are enduring being separated and praying for their family as they are uh, really being stretched, Lord. I just pray that you would sustain them and we share the desire of our heart is that you would heal this little boy. Or two, we continue to pray for Trevor pray for his treatment, Lord. We are celebrating uh, the reports and celebrating the pictures and the smiles and the, this new season at the Ronald McDonald House, Lord. We pray for his family, too, that you would sustain them, that you would heal his body. And, Lord, we also want to pray for another church in our community, praying for uh, Commerce Community Church this morning, uh, for David and Whitney Ferguson, uh, just entrusting them to you, first of all, as friends, Lord, I'm asking you to bless their marriage first. Uh, worship will just fuel their marriage and guide their marriage. And uh, David's love for his wife will be a reflection of Christ's love for the church. And Whitney's love for David will be a reflection of how the church moves and enjoys our groom. Lord, I just pray that their marriage would put the gospel on display. I pray too, Lord, that in, that, uh, in the ministry to one another, in the ministry to the people of God at C3, that you would um, continue to put the gospel on display, that you would raise up disciples, mobilize, equip uh, salty, bright, aromatic worshipers in commerce in the surrounding area, entrusting this church family to you and asking you to bless them, Lord. Uh, lastly, Lord, I just pray that you would guide our few moments that we have together. I, I pray for these six, these young six, with big faith. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless them on this special day for them, that you would bless and equip us as a people to see and enjoy the beauty of baptism. Uh, entrusting this time to you, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, home base for us today is in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
taking a departure from the book of Matthew. Uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. You can go ahead and turn there. I want to give you kind of a listening map for the morning. I, it helps me sometimes, especially if things are going in a lot of different directions, to kind of have a place where I can park uh, where we are in the story, where we are in the morning. So let me give you a kind of an, an, an audio map. Uh, we're going to get to know a man named Peter, Simon Peter particularly, the, one of the first disciples called. We're going to get to know this guy sort of through the lens of the Gospels. Uh, we're going to get to hear uh, what his thoughts are on the, the topic of baptism. And I think that in that, we're going to have some things that we can really walk away with and enjoy both um, for the six that are being baptized this morning and as fellow worshipers who many of us have already been through this, this event of baptism, understanding it more and then celebrating it together as a congregation and what's taking place. So uh, I'm going to be looking in the Gospels at a number of different places five, six different places, something like that, getting to know the guy. And in that place, I'll mention the passage. And if you're like visual guy and sword drill guy or gal, man, you can turn to those passages and you're welcome to join. But let me, let me just give you permission. If you want to just kind of sit and listen for the first part of this sermon, that might be a good thing to do. Just kind of listen and kind of in your mind's eye, begin to know this guy, get to know this guy, Peter, through some snapshots in the Gospels. And then the reason I'm kind of encouraging you to save your, your, uh, your energy is because I do have some places I want you to turn after that. Three different places in the Gospels that we're going to turn after that uh, to uh, see if we can connect this story of this guy named Peter to what he has to show us on the topic of baptism. Okay? So home base is 1 Peter chapter 3. And then I'll go ahead and give you those three places I'm going to have you turn in the Gospels just so you can be ready. Uh, those three places will be, let me find my, okay, Matthew 8, Matthew 14, and John 21. Okay, so you can put your bookmark or whatever in those places. Matthew 8, Matthew 14, and John 21. 21. All right, Peter is an earthy guy. I think he might be my favorite guy in the Gospels, and maybe one of my favorites in the, in the whole Bible altogether. He just is a guy that I really can identify with. He's not like me. I don't feel like I'm exactly like him. I don't think that's why I feel like I resonate with him, but I think I do, and a lot of people that I know and do life with have a lot in common with this guy. He's just really earthy. He's just really common. I mean, the thing I really enjoy about this guy is he's earthy and common. I just envision him having really big forearms, hairy forearms, because he's a working man, he's a fisherman, you know, and, and having a real big mouth. I mean, not necessarily measurement-wise, just a mouth that he opens and unloads far too often. Okay, again, I can identify with this guy. I like this guy quite a bit. So I'm going to just take you to a few different passages, and you can just kind of bear with me as I'm flipping around. I'll give you a reference for what they are, like I said, but save your, your effort for later on in the morning. John chapter 1 is where I'm going first. We're going to get to know this guy, Peter. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day, again, John, this will be John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. Okay, we're about to find out who one of them are. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples, these are John the Baptist's disciples, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. 
Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two, okay, I told you you're about to find out who one of them are. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Okay, Andrew then first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him, that would be Simon Peter, to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, we don't know, we know for sure, at least from this passage, that Andrew, Simon's brother, was one of the followers of John the Baptist. Okay, we don't know that, that Simon was a follower of John the Baptist as well. Okay, but we can kind of connect the dots here and realize that Andrew was one of those two who were disciples of John the Baptist who saw that moment unfold where Jesus walked by and John the Baptist says, there he is, the Messiah. They followed the Messiah. And then Simon then goes to, or Andrew goes to his brother, Simon, and says, hey, we found the Messiah. He brings him to Jesus and Jesus renames him. Okay, there is a possibility, we don't know this for sure, but there's a possibility, it's likely that Andrew was baptized by John the Baptist, but there's a possibility that so too Peter was baptized by John the Baptist. Okay, it's just a little window that we can kind of maybe imagine could have happened. Okay, the one thing we know is that Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist, possibly Peter, and possibly both of them had been baptized by Jesus. Okay, just kind of put that in your little database. Next passage is in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This is a familiar passage to us. We were here a few weeks ago. It's the calling of the first disciples in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. This was after that moment that I just read to you in John, at some point afterward. Okay, well, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. This is Jesus walking. He saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter. And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Okay, so this guy, again, imagining that he got really big forearms. He's a fisherman by trade. I did a little research back when we were unpacking that passage a few weeks ago. To be a fisherman was not an unseemly job. Fisherman's actually, or a fisherman's job was actually a really good job. Regular income, respectable profession. These guys are working hard and making money, uh, harvesting and selling fish that they are drawing out of the Sea of Galilee. He was well employed. Okay, it's one thing we can know about Peter. He wasn't just sitting around on flowery beds of ease. He wasn't idle. This is a hard-working dude out there with a really good job, and he's one of the first men called to follow Christ, and he became one of his inner circle throughout Christ's ministry. Okay? The next passage is in Matthew chapter 16. Give me a moment to turn there. Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to save really one of the best parts of chapter 16 for, for a little bit later in the morning. But there's one of the worst parts in this story, also in Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 23. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples, by that point Peter's one of them, 
that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and, said, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. All right, talk about putting your foot in your mouth. This guy, again, I can really identify with him as a guy that unloads his mouth in times and in ways and with content that are not fitting for the moment. And this is one that uh, prompted a response from Jesus actually referring to him as Satan. Wow, how do you even come back from that? I mean, do you, like, I'm just imagining Peter's like, I was just kidding, Jesus. <laughs> I, I mean, it was just a joke. You don't have to get upset about it and call me Satan. Okay, talk about putting your foot in your mouth. Okay, here's the next one. Just the next chapter over in Matthew chapter 17. Remember, we're getting to know this guy, Peter. Manly man that can unload his mouth <laughs> in times that just don't make sense. And here is another occasion, one of those in chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother. This is this sort of the inner circle. And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. Before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. All right, this is a pretty amazing moment. I mean, this is, you can just imagine that this would be a moment where, like, silence might be golden. All right, just imagining. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. I mean, it just even gets better. Just a time where a wise person would probably just shut it. Peter, though, said to Jesus, Lord, it sure is a good thing we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he's still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I'm just going to say, Peter, that really would have been a really good time to just be quiet. He got interrupted by God, of all things, speaking from heaven. I mean, this is a bad time to open your mouth. Sure is a good thing we're here, Jesus, to make you a tent for, your, for you and your buddies there. All right, next little glimpse into this guy is in John chapter 13. We have, I think, three more, so hang in there. Indulge me. So one of my favorite passages in John, this is the account of the foot washing. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's about to object. It sounded like an objection already. And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but after, afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never 
wash my feet. I mean, you can wonder, you can imagine what's behind that. It's a word that starts with pride. <laughs> you shall never wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter then just does a complete reversal and said, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. I really, really enjoy this guy, Peter. Man, he knows how to unload his mouth, but then he knows how to come full circle. And when he comes full circle, he is all in. Not my head, or not my feet only, but my hands and my head. The sad thing is a few verses later in the very same chapter, there's the prediction of one of the saddest events in the Gospels. Beginning in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. It's interesting, this evening, this evening of his arrest, here he is, he's um, um, incurring, almost encouraging where you see him saying, wash my hands and my head and my feet. If I can't have a part with you unless I'm bathed, then bathe me all over. And then moments later, the prediction of his betrayal. And then later that evening, he cuts off the ear of the high priest servant at Christ's arrest like a ninja Man, it's like a roller coaster, this guy. And then moments later, hours later maybe, denies even knowing this Lord, not once but three times, and one of them even to a maiden girl. Man, this guy is truly, truly a roller coaster. But I love him. I love everything about him. I'm convinced that this guy would listen to real country music, like not Luke Bryan. He would not listen to a guy wearing skinny jeans. No, no. Man, he would drive a dually. I'm convinced he'd drive a dually. It would be bad, too. He might even put a lift on his vehicle, if not a dually. This guy would be a linebacker if he played football, and he would be the guy that's jumping off sides sometimes that you'd have to reel back in and say, man, good job, knucklehead, but you jumped off sides. Man, I love this guy. He is truly every man. I love this guy, Peter. He's common. And he's oh so human. And you consider those moments, those little snapshots in the Gospels, where one moment he's all in, and the next moment he's not. Anybody else identify with that? Am I the only person in the room that can say, hey, man, sometimes I'm all in for you, Jesus, and other times I'm like, I'm not. And I would deny you to a maiden girl. Man, he's in some ways both the most discouraging and disappointing of characters in our New Testaments. And at the same time, he's also in some ways the most encouraging and hope-providing character in the Gospels. And one of the things that I enjoy about this guy, too, is whether you like it or not, we are in cahoots with this guy. We are in cahoots with this guy. A passage that I sort of skipped over a moment ago, now I'll share with you. In some ways, it's the centerpiece of the book of Matthew. It's a moment of confession. It's right before Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan, but it's such a pregnant and important moment. 
Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 16, it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, man, the guy I was... uh, First to open his mouth says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him with exclamation points. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Man, I love this moment, this frail, this feeble, this inconsistent, rash, hot-headed, big-mouthed, severely human guy really has broad shoulders in this moment with this confession. And he became, became the man that the church would be built on. Now, let me clarify that. This passage, in some ways, is interpreted. It can be interpreted two different ways. It's just a side note. Some people want to say that the church is built on Peter because of this statement. And then others say that's a play on words, that the church has been and is always built on Christ. And I would lean toward the latter with John Owen and lots of our Puritan forefathers. The church is built on Christ, ultimately. Okay? There are other people with good, strong reasons say that this is Peter, the church that he's saying that I'm building this church on you, Peter. That actually, interestingly, leans a little bit more the Catholic direction. Whichever direction you lean, though, with Peter as the rock that the church is built on or as the first to confess Jesus as the rock, which is where I would land, either way, we stand on this guy's broad shoulders. He was the first to say it. You are the Christ. We stand on his shoulders and are in cahoots with this guy, whether you like it or not. I like it, frankly, because I like him a lot. All right. Now, what does he have to say about baptism? We go back to our home base. You can turn back over there to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to unpack those three, just briefly unpack those three passages I mentioned in the Gospels. We're going to try and connect this to baptism. What is this ordinary guy with big forearms, big mouth, the first to confess, in some ways the primogenitor of the church, the first to confess Christ as the Messiah, okay? What does he have to say to us about baptism? Well, First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, I'm just going to read it. And then we're going to come back and unpack it a little bit here in a moment. This same guy says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to come back to that in a moment. But first, I'd like to unpack these three passages. This guy, I'm making a case this morning that this guy, Peter, is an expert on Baptism. Okay, let's start off first. Possibly a participant in John's baptism. We don't know that for sure. 
We didn't hang our hat on that, but possibly one of John the Baptist's followers, we know his brother was, he possibly was baptized by John the Baptist. We don't know that for sure. Okay? We also have no record of him being baptized by Jesus. Okay? Officially. But I'm going to show you a few snapshots, I think, that make the case that he's baptized all over the place. First, let's start with his call. You can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 8 and be ready. As you're turning there, I'll just make this just almost devotional thought about his call in regards to baptism. You remember what this guy is doing on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus passes by and calls him. He says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He calls a fisherman from his work. He's standing in the Sea of Galilee with his nets. You don't stand on shore and cast those things and pull them in. You're standing in the water, literally, casting nets and hopefully drawing fish in if you're good at what you do. And literally, he is called from the Sea of Galilee. He's drawn from the water with an effectual call into a life of following Christ. Okay, it's kind of maybe a stretch, maybe a little bit of a devotional application of a baptism where he's drawn from the sea to a life of following Christ. Okay, we'll just call that devotional. Let's look at this next passage beginning in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. This is Jesus climbing into the boat. His disciples climb in behind him. And behold, there rose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. The Sea of Galilee was super storm prone. Okay, the geography around the Sea of Galilee, the way the, uh, the hills and the, the uh, dry land is around the Sea of Galilee, it, you had these winds that would swoop in and, and, and create these terrible storms in just a moment. So here they are. They've climbed into this boat. And the waves begin to swamp the boat. And Jesus is asleep on the bow. And they went and woke him saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And just see that moment. Peace be still. There's that early morning time. Those of you guys that live on the lake or have a place on the lake, you know what it's like in the morning when you get up and you go, man, skiing would be really good right now. It's like glass. Man, they go from this storm, this waves that are coming into the boat in a moment and in a word to a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? I just want you to think about this for a moment. This Sea of Galilee, this storm-prone little sea there. There's no Coast Guard. You don't have any big fast boats to come to your rescue. No radios where you can call, mayday, mayday. No rubber lifeboats connected to the outside of the fishing boat. I don't even know if they had rubber. They probably didn't. I don't even know how they would. I don't even know if they had life buoys. All they had were the skills of fishermen, mind you. Fishermen who spent their lives on this sea, who knew this sea like the back of their hand, men who were acquainted with the equipment, albeit ancient, who were acquainted with storms, are crying out in despair, Lord, save us. Man, this must have been a terrible storm. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And he rebuked the winds and the sea, and then it's like glass. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to say this sure looks a lot like a little baptism. And at least we could call it a liquid ordeal. Could we do that? 
Can we call it a watery ordeal or a liquid ordeal or a liquid trial coupled with a call to Christ to save us in this mess? We are perishing. All right, let's look at the next one. Maybe that's a hard sell. We'll turn to Matthew chapter 14. I'm sure not, uh, knowing this church and knowing this people, none of these are a hard sell. So we won't even play like it is. We're just going to enjoy these beautiful pictures of baptism. Look at this next one, Matthew chapter 14. Again, we're trying to make the case here that Peter was an expert on baptism. Called from the sea, saved in a terrible storm with his buddies crying out, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And then, peace be still, glass. Look at this next passage, this next one in Matthew chapter 14. Immediately, this is after he fed the multitudes, he has his disciples climb into the boat as he goes off to pray. It says in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, this would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., that time of the night where you don't even have to see anything crazy to be seeing crazy things. You know what I'm talking? You know what I'm talking about? Where you should be in bed and you know it. It's that time of night where they're pushing against the waves. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Or just consider that for a moment. They're a long way from the shore. In a storm-tossed night, sea, the seas are all over the place. And he came to them walking on the high seas. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they're terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. And this is lost in translation, unfortunately. Or it's, our translations hide it. He responded with one of the, I think, a dear and obscure response. He said, I am. It's one of the I am statements. He said, Ah, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Okay, here's our guy. Here's our big four-armed guy, big-mouthed guy. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, <laughs> fittingly, and those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Man, what a beautiful, beautiful night. Out of the darkness, they see Jesus coming to them, walking on the waves. I mean, it's a miracle he owns density, he owns water, he even owns gravity, so it's a miracle, but really the more amazing thing is that God got into the boat, okay, it's all cool, but an amazing moment, scared them half to death between three and six in the morning. The other accounts say that they were sore afraid, that's what the King James says, you know when you're afraid, somebody says, you're sore afraid, you're like hurting, you're so afraid. I mean, you can imagine this moment, it, the ambient light must have been just enough to where they could see him from the stars and the moon in the distance as he's coming and walking to them on the waves. 
And it's in that frightening moment that this man, this big-mouthed, forearm, common man, this every man tries to walk to Jesus on his own. He tries to make the journey on his own. He gets a few steps only to find that he's sinking and drowning and he calls out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And the Lord, in keeping with the kind of Lord that we have, he grabbed him immediately, drawing him out and through the liquid ordeal. Man, I'm just thinking this guy's an expert on baptism. The last picture I'd have you turn to is in John chapter 21. John chapter 21, to give you a little bit of context. This is after the resurrection, after the cross, after the resurrection. Jesus has appeared to the disciples a couple of times. Uh, 20, chapter 20 uh, gives some details about those two appearances. In neither of those appearances is there really some, some connection between Peter and Jesus. Okay, I mentioned this earlier on, the time of betrayal, where he denied Christ three times. Uh, the last time, actually, after he denied Christ the third time, one of the Gospels said, uh, give the account that Jesus looked at him across the courtyard, looked at Peter. Like as he's being arrested, as he's being put in chains or whatever, as he's being shaken and jerked around, that he actually looked over and made eye contact with Peter as Peter's hearing the rooster crow. Man, talk about a terrible moment. This guy who's the primogenitor, the guy who confessed Christ is the Messiah, the guy that declared, I will lay down my life for you, the guy that also got the heads up that, no, you're going to deny me three times and actually did it, is in this state after Christ's cross and resurrection where they haven't really reconciled. Man, things haven't been made right since then. Christ has revealed himself to the disciples collectively a couple of times, but nothing's really happened with Peter. Peter's still left in this place of despair. Can you imagine? How would you feel? Man, you'd left everything to follow him, and you're all in in the next minute. You're not. And you get that look across the courtyard, and it's here in John chapter 21 that we pick up with this last little window. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he, also known as the Sea of Galilee. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two of the other disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I mean, can you just, can you hear that despair in that? Man, things are not good with my Lord. And I don't know how this thing's going to turn out. And I have fumbled royally. I'm going to go back to what I knew how to do before he called me. Anybody want to go fishing? I think I'm going to go fishing. And they said, well, might as well go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Man, that fitting. Big goose egg. Fishermen, hunter and hunters in the room, you know what I'm talking about. That goose egg, you're like, ugh, why don't I do this? This isn't fun. 
Man, all night they're out there, they got a big goose egg. They caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, as the sun comes up, man, what great timing. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? <laughs> Think he doesn't know the answer? How'd the fishing night go? Did you guys catch a mess of them? Do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. I can't imagine they didn't answer him emphatically if they didn't recognize him. No! Zilch, goose egg. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Ah, he owns fish too, apparently. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And Simon Peter, this ordinary guy, this every man, man, this guy that I so enjoy, When he heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Uh, He couldn't even wait for them to paddle ashore. He's like, I got to get ashore. I bet that they made it ashore before he did. That would be be like Peter, wouldn't it? Oh, man, trying to get ashore before they did, and they beat me ashore. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging their net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Man, what a great Savior to do what he's doing here and then to make breakfast for him. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Listen to what happens next. This guy's an expert on baptism. I'm convinced of it. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This must have been a terribly, terribly dark night for Peter and the disciples, Peter especially, for them to return to fishing. And it's fitting that they caught nothing after fishing all night. And a good Savior calls them from shore. And Peter, yet again, is drawn out of his despair in a fruitless night of fishing through the watery ordeal ashore to a Savior that meets him with breakfast. Man, the last place I want you to go back to is 1 Peter Peter chapter 3. This guy who comments on baptism over here in 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm just going to say lived a life of many baptisms, a ministry where he walked with Christ and he was well acquainted with baptism and this picture of being drawn 
through the watery or liquid ordeal. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He parallels that picture of Christ bringing us to God with later in verse 20. Because he says, and picks up where when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, connect to Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Let me show you this parallel. Christ is in the role in this passage in verse 18 that he might bring us to God through his work. And he parallels that with Noah and family who were brought safely through the water. In many ways, what he's doing here is he's saying, Christ is the new and better Noah. It's cool, though. He could have used a million different illustrations. He used Noah. He could, not, maybe not a million. He could have used a lot of other illustrations of being drawn through liquid ordeals. Maybe it was Jonah drawn through a liquid ordeal via a whale. Maybe it's Moses in a wee little ark who's placed into the Nile and drawn through the watery ordeal. Maybe it's the nation of Israel who's facing the Red Sea with the armies of Egypt to their back where they're drawn through the watery ordeal on dry ground because that's what God does. Or maybe it's Israel crossing the Jordan. He didn't even think about it. Maybe he didn't think about it. He didn't mention it. What about all the times that Paul is shipwrecked? God delivers his people through watery ordeals. But he chose to pick the story of Noah and in some ways he opened the door of metaphor. He opened the door of metaphor by bringing in this illustration of Noah and his family. The bringer in this picture is Christ with Noah as a shadowy picture that illustrates it. And the destination is God. The bringer is Christ and the destination is God. What I want to encourage you to see this morning, people of God and those who are being baptized, is that Christ is the new and better Noah. He's the captain of a ship that is delivered safely through the sea of judgment if you are united to him by faith. The six that are being baptized this morning are confessing to have been united to Christ by faith. So they will survive this liquid ordeal. <laughs> this thing that may not seem scary, but in some ways it's a symbolic uh, picture. But it's more than symbolic because it's more than just a picture. In some ways it is an application of God delivering his people through the watery ordeal. He just as easily could have used Moses with the Red Sea to the front and the armies of Egypt to behind him to illustrate the situation that all of us are in, in slavery to sin and death. Man, this picture of water is consistent, this water deliverance theme. You know, the church has disagreed for 2,000 years on the how water should be applied in baptism and when Water should be applied in baptism. But one thing the church has never disagreed on is water. <laughs> the church has always, for 2,000 years, agreed that water is a very fitting picture and application of this deliverance where God is delivering his people over and over and over again through the watery ordeal. And this guy, this every man, this frail, feeble, inconsistent, rash, big mouth, severely human guy, I'm saying was an expert on God's deliverance in Christ via water. Man, I enjoy his pictures that he's been, uh, that were delivered to us through the gospels of him being delivered through watery ordeal, saying, Lord, save us, we're 
perishing. We need Jesus to save us, is what we say in baptism, is what they said in those watery situations. We need Jesus to save us from our sins and to deliver us to the dry ground of God's presence. This morning, Emery Livingood is coming to do that. Her dad will be baptizing her, Drew. Lydia Jones, Levi Jones, Ben Jones, and Samuel will be baptized by their dad, Nick. And Henry Sutton will be baptized by his dad, Scott. Each of them are making an appeal today to God for a good conscience through the finished work of Christ. They are united to Christ by faith, and they are being delivered through the liquid ordeal. Drew?